Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Jerry Newman. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. I'm glad to be here. Jerry, you, you, I want to start here. You, uh, I want to get into a lot of Perez and, and the deployment age, uh, deployment phase, but I want to start with the, this tweet storm you had a few weeks ago that sort of introduced this idea, this question of whether uh, if you have differentiated information, you should publicize it and whether you can make money off it. Perhaps I'm mischaracterizing. Why don't you characterize the, the punchline of, of that tweet storm, and then we can get to the content of Carlotta's ideas and why they matter in venture. <laughs> Wish you had warned me about that one. <laughs> I tweet a lot of stuff. What did I say? <laughs> oh, it's okay. You're uh, basically saying you can make a lot of. Your conclusion was you can make a lot of money in venture, uh, in venture because people won't listen to your predictions. And you were saying the Carlotta as an example that you've been publicizing it, but people still aren't following it. Okay. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, the the idea being that this is a sort of a pervasive idea in my thinking. I don't know if you've had this, but every once in a while, somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, I've uh, I've created a machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithm that can predict stock prices." And my usual response is, "I don't think that's really possible, right? If if you could predict stock prices, a you wouldn't be asking me for money because you could predict stock prices, you could make money on your own, and b if you could predict stock prices." stock prices would respond to your ability to predict such that they, you would no longer be able to predict them, right? Any, any, any advantage you have would be arbitraged out of the market. And obviously, this is only true if you're doing it on a large enough scale. And so that's the kind of basic idea. You can pick holes in that all you want. But the idea that if you have some way of predicting the future, your predictions then become baked into what the future becomes. So your predictions can, can no longer be that accurate. Yeah. This is sort of the economist version of if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Yeah, or you know, you can't find a twenty dollar bill on the sidewalk. Um, did you did you read uh, the Foundation series by Asimov? Uh, I have not read him. You should. It's it's about a guy who he, he's a scientist. He invents a way to predict the future, um, and he and he does it by using psychology of, of groups. So if you have a large enough group of people, then you can predict what they will do. And it's an interesting premise. But even in the book, Asimov says you know the, the this whole thing had to be kept secret. And the predictions couldn't be unveiled ahead of time because then they wouldn't come true. And, and I think that's just a, it, it's a feature of any sort of social system that can adjust to, you know, to, that can adjust itself, that can recalibrate itself is that if you make predictions and people are like, oh, those predictions are true, then they may or may not be true. So if everybody believed Carlotta Perez's ideas, you know, there's, there's two possible outcomes. Either they become more true because people just do what they say. And this is sort of like Moore's law, right? You know, why is Moore's law true? Well, Moore's law was true because everybody believed it would be true. Yeah. Right. I mean, why there's no clock in technology uh, progression, right? So why would the number of uh, semi, the number of transistors on a piece of silicon double every 18 months? Well, it's because that's what people plan for all the big semiconductor companies. So predictions can be self-fulfilling in that way, or it can be that, if you say like, well, this is what's going to happen, everybody adjusts to that happening and then it doesn't happen. Yeah, example of the latter might be the crypto space where people are saying, hey, is anything interesting going to be happening here? All these talented people are, are working on it. And it's almost by definition because there's so many talented people working on it, something interesting might, uh, might emerge. Yeah, and that's definitely a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think the, the idea that you can influence the future by creating a narrative around the future is, uh, has always been true. Um, you know, one of the Way, you know, if you go back and you read Rogers on uh, diffusion of innovations, one of the things he talks about is you can have innovations diffused by telling a story that people will believe. Um, and if you think about the early days of the personal computer, this was clearly true. There were a lot of people telling stories about the personal computer, about how it was going to change the world, even before people knew how it was going to be used or what it would be used for. You know, yeah. What would you use a personal computer for? In 1977, there was you know, spreadsheets, there was, the word processors weren't that great. There was no real use yet for having a computer in your house other than playing video games. And, and you know, the Atari 2600 was better at that than the uh, Apple II. But people still bought them because they believed that the world was going to change because of, the, because of these PCs. And they wanted to be in on it before it happened. They wanted to be part of that. So th this was a, an example of a narrative changing 
the adoption of the technology itself. Uh, so yeah. you know, that definitely happens. You, you, the future can be influenced by how you frame it for people. Yeah, it's fast. I'm excited about prediction markets and 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 allowing people to have more stake in the uh, skin in the game. And you know, we see it with gambling. We see it, you know, it's, it's, it's with sports. Uh, it's just interesting to see as that permeates across society what effects that that might have. Yeah, the the, the tweet storm now uh, now that you've reminded me what it is, you know, was saying that basically, if people had believed Carlotta Perez's theories when I had propounded, or sorry, when I had summarized her book, you know, five six years ago, whenever that was. And, you know, I was, certainly wasn't the first VC to talk about her, right? Fred Wilson was talking about her. You know, uh, Chris Dixon had talked about her. Mark Andreessen had talked about her. But, you know, if people had believed what she said at the time, then a lot of the things that happened wouldn't have happened, right? Um, you, you wouldn't have had all these DTC companies. Um, well, maybe that's a different issue. But there's a lot, of, a lot of tech companies that wouldn't have been funded. So you could make money in VC by not believing her, but only because nobody else believed her. Interesting. And, and t- talk more about the DTC thing for a second. I, I know it's a different issue, but you tweeted about Casper this morning, so I know it's at the top of mind, but when we talk about that? I've been using um, Casper as an uh, example for my uh, entrepreneurship class for you know a year and a half now about how hard it is to build a sustainable competitive advantage. And, and obviously, the sustainable competitive advantage Casper is trying to build is their brand. You know, They, they drop ship pieces of foam. It's not... There's no difference in their business that anybody else can't mimic, right? But they do have a brand and, and that brand was just very expensive to build. So they raised a bunch of money and now they're going public and they're worth a bunch of money, but not a whole heck of a lot more than the amount of money they raised. So it's extremely expensive to build that kind of moat, you know, a brand. Um, and the you know, better kind of moat to build is something where it's hard for other people to replicate what you do, right? Your, your activities. And that's obviously not you know, my idea that's comes out of Porter and value chains, but you know, the, the, a lot of these DTC brands, the, you know, the, the food delivery companies are so easy to replicate that even if a, any one company makes money, it, it's almost inconceivable that the sector as a whole will make money. And I've written about this from like in the, in the eighties with the office supply superstores or the uh, disc drive companies, you know, there, there are certainly companies that made money in those sectors, but it was the, the sector as a whole didn't make money for the investors because there were so many companies in them. Right. And what are your ideas and moats relative to perhaps others um, in terms of where do you, what do you think people misunderstand about moats or, or don't fully appreciate? So in my current line of thinking is that as a startup, you can't really have a moat, right? You're, or you, you can't have value from a moat. Um, that moats create, you know, to create a moat, you either have to have time or money. And you don't have really either of those things at the very beginning of your startup. Even if you show up with a patent, say, which is sort of the prototypical moat, you show up with a patent and you say, look, this patent is my moat. Nobody else can do what I'm doing. So my startup's worth something. I really don't think that's how startups create value, right? Like you, you look at Google with their patents on PageRank and Yahoo, you know, they, they tried to sell that technology to Yahoo for a million dollars and Yahoo turned them down. Um, all the search engines at the time turned them down because the patent wasn't worth much. So where was the value that they built? How did they build value in the face of all this competition with even, you know, with, with the patent sort of not being the moat? And I think the answer is that nobody else believed what they were doing, right? Nobody else believed there was a market for what they were doing because they were coming in and saying, hey, you know, you, you're not going to make money from the kind of advertising that Yahoo and Excite are doing. You're not going to be portals where people spend as much time as possible on your site. You're going to come in, you're going to search something, you're going to go. Um, and that's, that's the value. That's what the customers are at, at, search, at, at a search engine for. If you, if you do that for the customer, you're going to have a lot more customers. And Yahoo and Excite said, well, but if you do that, then they don't see, have, see that many pages, right? So they're, they're going to see one page and then leave. There's not enough. You don't have them there long enough to make money. So, you know, supposedly one of the search engine CEOs said to me like, you know, when they, when they came in, they said, well, this was excite. said, we'd really rather have search that was 80% as good as everybody else because we don't want people to leave the site, right? We want people to stay and look at our, uh, our content. So Google comes along and says, Hey, well, we want people to show up, type in one thing and then leave because that's what they're here for. And everybody else says, that's not going to work. It's not going to work as a business. So the, the moat they had, the reason why nobody else replicated them wasn't because the patent, it was because nobody else believed in what they were doing, right? There was this fundamental uncertainty about what was going to happen to their business. So w- was it a business at all? You know, where, where were you going? What was the goal? Um, was it feasible to reach whatever that goal was? Um, and it was this uncertainty that kept, kept everybody else out until they could build a moat. And I think that's, you know, similar to, you know, if you were Apple in 1976, you know, why didn't IBM come in and compete with you? You know, IBM was an undisputed master of computers. They'd been in the computer business for 
decades at that point. They were a huge company, one of the biggest companies in America. And yet they didn't go and say, well, you know, let's, let's compete with Apple and build personal computers. And, and the reason was because they didn't think there was a market for personal computers. Uh, and the reason they didn't think there was a market was because there was no market for personal computers at the time. And they couldn't imagine that changing because there was no data to say like, well, this is what people want, right? You, you couldn't have gone out and done customer development and said, hey, you know, what problems are you solving that a personal computer would solve? There, there were none, right? Home computers, like what problems did people have at home that a personal computer was good for? It's just, there were none. So you know, that market was was created, but because it hadn't been created yet, people said, well, it doesn't exist. So it wasn't until you know, 1981, 1982 that IBM said, well, wait, this market does exist and we should build a product and compete with Apple. And uh, by that time, Apple was already public. Um, they were a Fortune 500 company. They were big enough to defend themselves against IBM, uh, although they still almost lost. But it, it was uh, that period of uncertainty about the market that gave them this uh, ability to grow without a moat. Yeah. So this is, this is you know, what I'm thinking about right now. And it's interesting, the Yahoo Google example, because today there's such a focus on trying to own the whole value chain. So where, do you, where does that come from? And how does that square with the Yahoo Google example where uh, Yahoo tried to do that and it seemed like it didn't work, whereas Google focused on you know, dominating one, one element of it and obviously became a much bigger business? You know, I, I really think that if you're going into a business where there's not a lot of uncertainty, uh, where it's predictable, where you can say, like, this is what's going to happen, um, this is how big the market is. This is the product that people want. Uh, this is what we have to do to to win. Then it's not it's not a market that's worth going into, because then what you're saying is the way we're going to win against everybody else who can see the exact same facts we can see is by being better operators, right? I mean, and that that may be true that you're a better operator. I mean, there's certainly somebody has to be the best operator. But generally, if you're the better operator, you can probably go get a job at some Fortune 500 company uh, and make a ton of money, right? I mean, it's not usually the people who are, you know, in their 20s, you know, coming out of college who are you know, your prototypical startup entrepreneurs who are necessarily the best operators in the world. I, you know, I never look at my founders and say, are these people going to be the best managers ever? I, because I think, A, there's no way to know. And B, like, it's a little unrealistic of me to expect that from people who've probably never started a business before, you know, and, and if they are the best operator ever, then shouldn't they be running, you know, general motors or something? It's uh, you know, so it's, I think, you know, you need something besides that. I mean, not that people aren't important. People are obviously the most important thing to me, but not that. So you don't want them to own the whole value chain. You want them to sort of change the value chain. I want them to do something that other people and other companies think or not, not that they think won't work, but they just have no idea, right? It's, you know, if you, sometimes I'll, I'll look at a company and, and then I'll talk to another venture capitalist about it, trying to build a syndicate. And, you know, I'll, I'll listen to what they say. And if they say like, that won't work, um, I'll say, well, what do you mean it won't work? And if, the, if, they're, if they're saying like, you know, he, here are the reasons it won't work, like there's actual data to back up why it won't work. Okay, you know, maybe it won't work. But if what they're saying is, I don't know if it will work or not, all right, well, that might be a good place to invest because you want to invest in the places where you don't know, right? And I think, you know, look, it, why would you own the entire value chain? Um, it's not like, I suppose there are circumstances where you need to own the entire value chain. And I probably have invested in some of them, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. But I think generally you should focus on the one thing where you can really create value. And I think that one thing is the place where there is the uncertainty. And there's almost never uncertainty across the entire value chain. Um, owning the entire value chain is more of a way to try to create a moat um, to prevent co- competition. And, and again, you know, I think to do that, you're either spending the time or the money. So the, the, you know, my analysis doesn't apply to like series C companies, right? If you're series C and you're trying to own the entire value chain, fine. I don't consider that a startup, right? That's way past where I invest. I'm thinking of companies that are starting right out of the blocks and, and I invest in, you know, two people in an idea. So uh, certainly it's different. So in, in contrast, typically to the lean startup, you know, uh, Steve Blank, uh, philosophy. Keith Raboy says that product market fit is forged, not discovered. And it's sort of like uh, casting a movie. You you know set the vision, you find the actors, and, and then you you execute. Uh, do you uh, do you differ from that? You know, I, I I disagree with pretty much everything Keith Raboy says except for that. I you know, although I I do disagree that there's really that you can make any single statements about. Uh, startups and have them be true uh, across everything, right? And I think he would probably agree with that. Product market fit can be forged. Yeah, I think that's the idea we were talking about before, narrative, right? You can create product market fit. I mean, you you know, I I was thinking about 
couple months ago, I think I wrote about it that, uh, you know, can you imagine an alternative present where instead of Apple being the prototype for the personal computer, it was came out of Atari, right? Where it wasn't a screen with a keyboard. It was, you know, a console with a joystick and you know, that it was much more um, gesture based. And, and I think you can imagine that, right? You can imagine that happening. That really wasn't where Atari was going with that. And, and people adopted the Apple model because of the types of uses that well, became popular earlier. But, you know, you can imagine an alternative scenario where it turned out differently. And the reason it didn't was because there was actually a ton of people trying to convince everybody that this kind of personal computer was the future. There were computer user group, there were, there were magazines, there were, you know, a lot of uh, PR or, you know, it wasn't even necessarily planned PR, uh, but people talking to the media about how this was the future. And people read this stuff and said, well, this is the future. They, they, they were convinced this was the future. And so it did become the future, right? It was, it was that kind of self-fulfilling thing we had talked about before. So yeah, you can create product market fit. Now, that's true in some senses where what the eventual product will be is unknown, right? If the uncertainty is around what it is that people actually want, then yeah, you can, you can create it, right? You can create your market. There's a different kind of thing where like, you know, if you're a biotech company and you're building a drug that will cure cancer, to use a pretty broad brush, then yeah, product market fit is, you know what that is, right? You're not creating product market fit. Product market fit is a drug that cures cancer, right? You're, you're trying to find that. The, the uncertainty is around how to do that, the, the, the means to do that, not the goal. Uh, so I think there's, two, you know, there's, there's a lot of places where uncertainty can come from. It can come from your means, like what do you have? What can you, what can you do? It can come from what you're hoping, where you're hoping to end up where certainly when Google started, they had no idea where they'd end up, right? They, you know, their, their goal was... Make all the information accessible? Yeah, I mean, something like that, right? Which is like not really a goal. That's kind of a, that's pretty vague. But they knew what they had, right? They, they, they didn't have any uncertainty about the technology they had. They just didn't know where they were going with it. You know, and it was, they famously published a paper saying, we don't believe that advertising, that, that search engines should make their money from advertising because it's an inherent conflict of interest. And it was, you know, then resolving that conflict of interest that created the, the multi- you know, billion dollar company that it is today. So you know, where's the uncertainty here? Is it in the means? Is it in the ends? Is it in how the means and ends connect? Is it in how your competitors will respond? You know, each of these different types of uncertainty will change how you should respond. And it will change things like what does product market fit mean? Um, is it important? It'll change like whether or not lean is going to work. It'll change whether or not customer development will work. All these things change based on where the uncertainty come from. So I don't think you can make any sort of dispositive statements and say, this is always true. Yeah. Um, what, what uncertainty are you most interested in taking versus what uncertainty you, you know, will you not take? I really prefer the uncertainty around what are the goals. So I, I, I sincerely dislike uncertainty around means, um, you know, can we do this or not? Can we, you know, I think of that more as like research and development. Like I would be an awful biotech investor. You know, we're out experimenting, trying to figure out if this, if we can create a cancer drug, that's the kind of uncertainty I hate and I'm not equipped to take it, but people make money doing that. I much prefer the, we have something that does something really interesting. Um, we think there's a market that could be enormous. There's some scenario where this could become enormous, but we don't really know how we're going to get from here to there. Um, so we're going to be going out into market and trying it with a bunch of different people and seeing how they use it, how they respond to it, and then adapting our technology or our product to whatever use is the highest value. That's the kind of thing I really prefer. And, and why do you prefer it? Because you, you can help more there or because you think it's likely to be more, you know, upside businesses, uh, harder to compete with? I, I think it's uh, a better fit for venture capital. You know, I have been in companies that are R&D type companies and it's, uh, that's a game for people who have a lot more money than I have. You know, you look at like General Electric with engineered plastics, it took them supposedly 20 years and a billion dollars to perfect the engineered plastics uh, before they really had a business. So, you know, they probably didn't think it was going to be 20 years and a billion dollars when they started. They probably, whoever pitched that original plan at GE probably said, oh yeah, that's going to be like one year and, you know, $10 million. And then every year it just grew and grew. Um, and it was probably worth it in the end for them, but I don't have 20 years and a billion dollars. So you know, that's not the kind of thing I want to fund. And I, I don't want to take that kind of uncertainty because it's, it's sort of an unbounded uncertainty, right? It's, um, whereas if you invest money in a company where you're not sure where it's going to end up, well, worst case is you lose the money you invested, not that you have to invest another billion dollars. So it's, uh, you know, it, I think it fits the venture capital model better. You know, I, I think it's also just what I'm more familiar with. I think most of the companies that I think about as success stories were ones that built their market that didn't know what their market was when they started. They may have had some idea, but 
didn't necessarily turn out that that market was the one they ended up in. Yeah. So it's, you know, something that I feel more, I feel more familiar with. It's also, I think, you know, being more familiar with it's easier to help founders navigate that kind of uncertainty. Let's go go back to Carlotta's ideas. Um, you, you mentioned that most VCs didn't take her ideas seriously. What would have looked like, like what would they have done if they had taken her serious, your ideas differently? What would be different? And broadly, how, how can her ideas help, say, me be a better, better venture capitalist in 2020 or if I was in 2000 or if I was in 2040? Like how, how should we understand them as it relates to you doing venture capital? Well, I mean, the glaring thing that she says is that when you get to the deployment age, the second half of the technological cycle, that the casino capitalism is gone and that innovation is funded by incumbents, right? That it's production capital, not necessarily funded by incumbents, but it's production capital that people will build things that improve existing technologies, not introduce radically new technologies. And if that's true, then the role of the venture capitalist itself is is very different, right? And I, I think what it means is you're going to have to have people investing more money at a later stage in things that have that create less value. So both funds need to be larger and they'll have lower returns, right? Because sustaining innovation, the kind of incremental innovation that happens every day, everywhere, in every company, you know, every good company in America and around the world is slow and steady. It's not big leaps. So there's not a ton of money to be made doing that because the, you know, the, the, the IRR in it just isn't as high. Now it's more certain, right? You have a lot fewer failures. So the expected IRR overall might be the same, but that's not what venture capitalists do, right? It's not, you're not making bets when you're doing incremental innovation. So that, that's kind of the glaring point was, you know, Carlotta Perez says at one point in some, it's one, one of her papers that the job of venture capital is done or the job of financial capital is done. And, and we, the venture capitalists are financial capital, right? That's what we do. So that's the first point. Like if they really believed it, they would have retired. Now, the second point, and, and you know, you can argue about that. I mean, obviously, depending on when the deployment age really started, venture capital has gotten a lot bigger. It's continued to deliver um, you know, the way it always has when the, you know, buying low and selling high, right? And the people who invested in 2008 through 2010 are, you know, exiting now or making a lot of money. But, you know, on the other hand, it's, it has become a different thing, right? There's the things like delivery companies are not radical innovation. They're sort of incremental innovation at best. But, you know, again, doesn't mean you can't make money doing it. Uh, this, the second point would be that, you know, this is, it's funny when I published that thing five or six years ago, people, a lot of people, including a lot of venture capitalists said, well, you know, if, if this technological wave is done, if we're in the part where it's going to be a lot less interesting, a lot less radical, then we'll just invest in the next one, right? We'll start investing in, you know, the nanotechnology or, you know, whatever it is that's going to be the next thing we can, you know, as venture capitalists, we can fund the companies that are going to be the next wave and make money on those instead. Uh, and that's you know, the goes against what she said is going to happen, which is that when you get into this point in the technological cycle, there, people are not going to adopt entirely different things, right? They're going to use the stuff we have to make their lives better, not switch to a different technology entirely. Um, and and it, not until this wave starts to really kind of plateau will people say, okay, you know, how am I going to keep making my life better if this technology is stagnated? Um, so, you know, if you look around like in 1970, when this wave started, um, you know, according to her timeline, the, you know, the economy was pretty stagnant. Technological innovation from the earlier technology wave, the, uh, you know, the, electric st- the electricity and uh, mass transit and et cetera had really stagnated, right? You had people introducing products like the electric knife or the electric can opener that, that weren't even incremental innovation. I mean, they weren't innovation. I mean, they, they weren't improving anybody's lives. So when we get to that point with the computer age, then people will start to say, all right, what else is out there that I can adopt? I'm, I'm really, people like a certain amount of change, but right now people are sick and tired of the change. Uh, I think people are wishing that technology would slow down, that they could just have the time to adopt the technologies that, that's out there already. And you see this in the, you know, the, the political and social discourse, right? So I, I think, you know, the idea that one venture capitalist is going to step into the deployment age and, you know, change the, uh, the direction of the economy is silly, right? I mean, you know, investing $2 million in a company can't change the direction of the economy. You know, when you think about the adoption of computers as you know, a society, the amount of money that went into that was not, not the amount of money that was invested in an Apple computer in 1976 and 75. It was all the money that was invested in that, in the telecom lines, in the internet, in every router, in you know, all of these companies spending a ton of money, all these programmers getting trained. Uh, it took decades 
and an untold amount of resources, far more than any, you know, any even the venture capital sector as a whole can command. It's, it was a major part of the economy. So any new technological revolution has to have that kind of support within the economy at some point to really change the economy. And, and if it doesn't, then it's going to fail. So, so is the message that if we were in the 90s, you know, it's like that was the go time. That was when you were investing a, a lot. Or, or And how, how do we know when it's the next technological revolution, whether it's, you know, biotech or crypto or, or something else? The post that I wrote immediately after that Carlotta Perez post, which nobody read, everybody read the Carlotta Perez post, but not the one I wrote immediately after was that the reason that I wrote that post and, and that I, I explicated her ideas was that I hoped that people knowing this would change it, right? This is a the business cycle that she talks about and that others have t- talked about isn't some sort of law of nature, right? It, it, it's a phenomenon that's emergent from our complex society. And that means that it's something that, that happens because we as a whole have sort of decided it's going to happen. Uh, it's not, so it can be changed. So if you really believe that, you know, we have another 20 years of this before anything really new and interesting is going to happen, then you know, I mean, maybe that's just what you do, but it, it, you know, you're going to keep investing in this, you're going to keep living in this, and you're not going to try to change much, which I think is, would be unfortunate, right? Because, you know, one of the reasons I'm in this business, because I, I like change. I want to see change. I want to see what's, you know, the next thing. I would love to watch nanotechnology start to work. I'd love to see quantum computing work. I'd, you know, I mean, all of these things are just interesting to me, right? So the idea that we're kind of in this stagnant, like 1950s man in the gray flannel suit era is awful to me. I mean, that's just an awful idea. So I'd, I'd like to see it change. I mean, I'd like to see but people continue to try it? to change it. Sorry, go ahead. How, how do we change it? I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew. I, I mean, I think it's, and look, I mean, it's not like if you were living in the 1950s that you couldn't get involved in computers. I mean, again, you know, this is, that was when the first computers were really being built, Right. You, know, you could certainly have become a computer scientist back then and made a huge impact on how computers evolved because you know, when was the ENIAC introduced or the UNIVAC, sorry. UNIVAC was introduced like 1949, 1950, right? So that was the, you know, in some sense, the golden age of explorers. The, but the, the thing is that you, can't, you couldn't make money in computers as an independent then, right? It, the, the company that produced the UNIVAC, the, uh, the, the two guys from UPenn who built the ENIAC went off and started a company called Eckert Malclay Computer and they went out to try to raise independent capital to build the UNIVAC. And uh, they couldn't. Nobody would put money into this crazy idea. And so they, they ended up selling to uh, Burroughs. And Burroughs funded it. And that was the beginning of the commercial computing industry, uh, digital computing industry, um, that gave rise to you know IBM becoming one of the largest companies in the world. It probably would have been an interesting investment, but there was no risk capital for that sort of thing. It was production capital. So Burroughs was an existing company. They you know, put their own money into it to build it internally. Uh, Eckert and Malkley did not become uh, very wealthy. You know, it, it's just, uh, that's the way it was. They, they had a huge impact. The UNIVAC had a, a huge impact on how computers evolved. And so it depends on what you want, right? If, if you want to have a huge impact on whatever the next wave of technology is, and, and I don't know what it is, I can't really predict it, but you, know, you could be working on nanotechnology today. You could be working on quantum computing today, and people are. You just probably won't make a lot of money from it. Right. Well, are, are there any criteria, like when, when will you make a lot of money for or, or any criteria that could help us point in the direction of, oh, this might be the next technological revolution or, or this is it when we, you know, we will be able to see it when it's happening? You know, the, well, is there? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, if she, if, you know, Perez basically at one point said that the turning point in the, this technological revolution was around 2001, you know, the, the, the dot-com bubble bursting, et cetera. She's later amended it to say that it was somewhere between 2001 and 2008. You know, in either case, we're, if we're in the deployment age, which lasts, you know, 30 to 40 years, then, you know, we're maybe halfway through it. You know, at a, which at, at about this point, you should start seeing the, the uses of the technology becoming less interesting generally, like, or not less interesting, less surprising. Uh, and, I, and I think that's pretty true. Yes, yeah, so software is eating the rest of the world. Uh, you know. Software has eaten the world, right? And now it's just basically like, you know, it, it, it's eaten the world and, and now it's just, all right, well, everybody expects it to be there, right? I mean, you wouldn't buy a product that didn't have some sort of information technology built into it unless it was something super simple, right? You, you kind of expect it, that if it can add value, it's already there and that it works and that, you know, the Iowa caucuses aside that, you know, people know what they're doing when they build it, right? That's just a basic expectation. 
you know, you're not going to buy, you know, you're not going to buy a thermostat today that doesn't have a computer in it. Um, so, you know, software has eaten the world and you know, now it's just kind of progressing along, you know, getting slightly better every year and uh, it's boring, right? Uh, for the most part, not that everything is boring. There's certainly some surprising stuff, you know, that pops up. So yesterday, some guy took a neural network and, and took one of the early movies from like the 1910s and sharpened it so that it looked like it was shot in HD. Like, All right. That was surprising. You know, so there's, there's still surprising things that'll pop up, but it's going to become a lot less frequent. So, you know, if you think about the 1950s and 1960s, like what were the big technologies that made a big difference, right? There were computers and they didn't make that big a difference then. They made a big difference later in the 70s, but, you know, not, not then. I mean, the, you know, the most important technology of the 1950s and 1960s was containerization. And that made a big difference, but it was really much more of a deployment age technology where it took advantage of the existing infrastructure to improve it, not to make some sort of radical change. Uh, although in some it made a radical change. And, you know, who made money from containerization? Like certainly not the guy who invented it. You know, I, I think uh, it was spread out among a lot of existing operating companies, the money that was made. I asked Carlotta about crypto. She said it's not a new technological revolution. She says it's part of like the socioeconomic uh, part of the existing one and that it might help distribute capital in, in some different way. But but she thinks bio biotech is going to be the, the next technological revolution. Do you have a, any reaction to either of those points? You know, my reaction would be that, uh, you know, her own analysis analysis suggests that we can't know ahead of time. So, you know, while we can always guess and, and and we can be hopeful right i mean biotechnology revolution would be great you know we all want to live to be you know 500 years old especially those of us who are a little older um you know it's the, you know her theory says that you can't know that there you can't know ahead of time and, and i think you know that's partly my focus on, on uncertainty is that there are a lot of things you can't know ahead of time and, and the things that are most interesting you can't know ahead of time because if you knew them ahead of time then they'd already be here right if you knew the biotechnology was the next technological revolution people would be shoveling money into it now, right? So it, would, it, you, it wouldn't be the next one. It would be the current one. So, you know, her, her saying that she, th- she thinks that is, I think that's partly like it's a candidate and partly it's wishful thinking. Um, you know, she's previously said she thinks the uh, kind of you know, green revolution would be the next technological revolution. And I think that's also sort of wishful thinking. I mean, we all wish that would be, but I think there's no way of knowing. And, and I think even personal computers, there was no way of knowing until they became mainstream right in the 80s like you wouldn't have been able to tell in the 70s that that was the next technological revolution you know when the, when the microprocessor was was invented at intel in the early 70s even intel didn't recognize its revolutionary potential they 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 you know they wanted they didn't want to put resources into it there was a, a manager there who convinced them to put resources into it and i think he convinced gordon moore like look we should do this and he was like all right go ahead and try but you know who cares and, and then intel was not the company that even took advantage of it right like the Apple II didn't have an Intel processor in it. The TRS-80 didn't have an Intel processor in it. The Commodore 64 didn't have an Intel processor in it. It wasn't until 1981 that Intel processors entered the personal computer world in a big way with the IBM PC. And why? Well, because Intel didn't think it was important for 10 years, right? I mean, nobody knows. I, I, don't, I think the idea that you can know is it, it's uh, unconstructive yeah, to be charitable. Shifting gears a little bit, you you had this uh, sort of seminal post on portfolio theory, which basically sort of you know made the 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 assertion or, or you know looking at the data that hey venture capitalists are not great at picking outliers. They make most of their money from, from outliers, and thus you know the implication you know that maybe you know, Sequoia has five percent unicorn rate. Most people have you know something like one or two percent, or if, if if that if that. And so the implication is hey you should make a lot of bets that you have a chance to get an outlier, and you come to the opposite conclusion, which is that, uh, hey, the more bets you make, the, the less you'll be good at picking and the less you can help uh, your companies. And thus, you should have a concentrated portfolio to, to maximize your odds of, you know, of, of picking well and then helping well. Feel free to edit that characterization. I, I, just real quick, I, I come to an opposite conclusion a little bit, which is I think YC has proven, uh, not that it's a better strategy to have a wide portfolio, but that it's, it can be just as good of a strategy if you figure out how to pick at scale without you know, sacrificing your picking and then um, support at scale without sacrificing your ability to support to the extent that you believe supporting helps. Uh, how, how would you edit or respond to, to my points? Well, let me ask you a question first. Why do you think YC has been successful? Or what, 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 what metric are you saying that YC is successful by? It's a great question. I'm, I'm sort of speculating. I don't, ha- I don't have their returns, but I'm, I'm assuming that if you get 7% 
of you know Airbnb and uh, Dropbox and you know, dozens of other unicorns that that you you've done well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know, sure you know, benchmark or something. Or. So this is a complicated question. I, I I think you know I everybody says that venture returns are power law distributed, and there's a lot of data that supports that. Um, although it's always hard to tell if it really is or isn't because uh, there isn't enough data, you know, which, which then would say, well, if you're on that power law, then yeah, you should have as many bets as possible. I, I do think that if you took all of the companies I see, not all the ones I invest in, but all the ones I see and all the ones you see, that those are not power law distributed, right? That the 80% of companies you don't invest in and the 50% of companies that you see that nobody invests in are probably not on that power law distribution. Now, it's hard to know, right? Because if nobody invests in them, they don't even have a chance. But I think there are some ideas that are just bad ideas, right? That you, know, you can kind of weed those out. So you know, whether or not that's true is a good question. Uh, you know, it's, and it's a question of whether or not we can know anything, right, as investors. So if we can't, if it's true that those companies would also be on a power law, then we can't know anything. And we should just randomly pick companies to invest in. But none of us believe that, right? We all believe that, that you know, it was Michael Mabasan who said that you know, the difference between, the, the way that you can tell if something is pure luck is, can you pick losers, right? And if you can't pick losers, then it's luck. But I do think that in the companies that I've seen that I can certainly pick some of them as losers. Like this is just not going to work. So that means it's not all luck. And if it's not all luck, then being able to choose the ones that fit the power law are, is important. It means that the power law that we see in venture capital is, is a, is a result of a picking process. So, you know, even if it's just weeding out the things that will clearly not work, then what remains is the power law. So that means that to stay on that power law, you have to be able to pick, you have to be able to pick the things that are in the power law, you know, the possibility of being on that power law. And if that's so, then you need to see enough stuff that the things you pick are on the power law. And if you just decide to, you know, invest in 80% of the things you see instead of 20% or 2% or whatever, then you're not gonna be on the power law anymore. Um, so this is, you know, clearly a theoretical argument. Now, if you talk to people at some of the people at some of the firms that have invested in a bazillion companies, you know, there's some support for it anecdotally. YC is interesting, right? If you look at YC and, and you look at how many companies they've invested in that have become billion dollar plus companies, they have this about the same proportion of billion dollar plus companies as I do in my 51 company portfolio. So I actually, yeah, so I, I have two out of 51 and they've got, I don't know, some number out of a much, much larger number of, of investments. Now, YC is far more successful than I am because they get to invest at about a $250,000 pre-money price. And I have never gotten that price, right? Because they're taking a, a percentage of the company for a very, very small amount of money because they're offering these, these other services. So yeah, they've, their IRR has got to be you know, astronomically higher than mine, but they're success rate in picking is not higher than mine. So, you know, I, I, in some sense that argues against the saying, well, you know, if you just have a much, much larger pool of candidates, you're going to have more, you know, more outliers. Right. Um, but it also argues against necessarily the idea that your, your, your pick rate is going to get worse the more you have. Yeah. Although, you know, their pick rate should be better given the math of the situation than mine, right? Cause they've done so many more companies. Right. Um, you know, look, I, I think it's, but not, not like taking my portfolio and their portfolio is really going to tell you much. I mean, the, the funny thing about venture is you know, even if you've invested in 500 companies, it's still entirely anecdotal. Like that's so little data. There was another post I wrote about power laws where it said like, you can't Monte Carlo simulate venture because the, given the, the nature of a power law distribution, any, any set of deals, any set, any you know number of deals is really insignificant in the scheme of things of, of the power law. And, and I did some math to show that, but like, you know, they, there was a, a data set of a, a couple thousand angel investments and people were using that to Monte Carlo simulate outcomes. And, you know, I showed that like, look, even the, you know, even the, the, the power law distribution we're investing on has an infinite mean, even that really large set of data is entirely anecdotal and doesn't describe the distribution at all. It's just Monte Carlo, you know, simulations like that don't work. And, and I think, you know, a similar idea that, great, well, you know, YC has, I don't know how many companies they've invested in, you know, thousand, two thousand, I mean it's a ton, right? It's still entirely insignificant in the scheme of things that you can't really draw any conclusions from their outcomes. Right. And, and I think this is the sort of interesting thing. Like you can sort of posit a, a probability distribution outcome and then use that outcome to model. 
but you can't say like, oh, well, this is what things look like. Um, yeah. you know, it, the, all deal. If you took a, you know, two hundred thousand deals, they would just be like these two thousand deals, but you know, hundred times bigger. You know, it's sort of frustrating working in this field because there's there's never enough data. I mean, there's, there, the data is bad enough as it is, and there's so little data. And then even with you know what data we have, you really can't say much. Yeah. And it is interesting. Um, another part of portfolio construction is follow-on. And if I understand correctly, you come to the conclusion that you know follow-on dollars are usually better spent because you spent time with the company, you have better you know uh, idea about the company, and you can better allocate from there. Uh, you have a post uh, sort of talking about the Kelly Criterion. You've since edited your views uh, recently. Why don't you talk about your, your thinking there? Yeah, no, this is something I've I thought about for a while. Um, I had a friend who was a trader on Wall Street, and I was having a beer with them. And we were talking about, you know, I was trying to make sure I had pro rata rights in investment I was working on. And he said, well, I don't understand. So you're getting a call option where the strike price is the price at that time. I said, yeah, I guess. He's like, well, that's worthless, right? Well, <laughs> it's worthless. So, well, I see why theoretically it's worthless, right? I mean, if you're, if you have an option to buy at the market price, then well, you might as well just buy at the market price. That's the market price. But of course you don't. Right. And why is it, why is it different? Uh, and, uh, maybe I overthink things, but the, the answer is, well, I don't necessarily have the right to buy at that market price. So in some sense, it's not really the market price, right? It, it's not, a, it's not a place where the lead investor could take it or leave it. So if you want to take part of it, that's fine. They're sort of indifferent, right? So it's clearly below the market price. So having the right to invest at below the market price is always worth something. Now, I think, you know, just my experience, you know, in my experience, there have been times where I've taken my pro rata and times where I haven't. You know, typically it's, I, I won't take it because either I believe the new investor is making a huge mistake, which is actually has been very rare in my career. Usually it's because they're investing in a value where, you know, my few extra bucks aren't going to make a difference either to the company or to my own holdings. So, you know, I might as well deploy those elsewhere. But generally I think, you know, having the right to take it is important. And, and I usually do take it. I mean, you know, I usually, at least in the second round and the third round, you know, take my pro rata. Because I think you know enough about the company to, to know that the price that the lead is offering is below the market price. And, and you would know if it wasn't because you've been involved. Now, that only works if you're involved, right? If you're, but if you're on the board of a company, you know, you're meeting with the, the founders you know, every month for a year and a half and you're on the phone with them every week, then you have a lot better idea of what the company is worth and what those founders can do than somebody who's coming in from the outside. So I think it's, you know, I, I do believe in follow-on. So I'm curious, some people... Uh, say that uh, VC is sort of like poker or something. They're, they're searching for analogies that I, that I think are pretty fraught because uh, they sort of imply that you know people have equal hands or, or and it's really you know, about the investing component as opposed to sort of the upfront rigging of the game, so to speak, so that you uh, have sort of you know better deal flow and a better brand to be to, to see more deals and to get into the deals that, that you want to get into. The idea that you know, Sequoia didn't pick WhatsApp as much as WhatsApp picked. Sequoia. Uh, how do you how do you react to the ideas that I'm saying? What do you think is the best sort of a metaphor or analogy for thinking about you know how to have an advantage in, in venture or moat in venture capital? I think about poker a lot. In one aspect, you know, it's the portfolio management aspect. I, I think the idea and you know, the I did write a post about the Kelly criteria, and then I withdrew it, or at least I put a warning at the beginning because I actually don't think it's applicable. I think that post was wrongheaded, but I, I do think about poker in the sense of well how do you decide how much to bet on each bet? And it's not entirely applicable because unfortunately with venture, you don't bet on one thing, find out two minutes later and then bet on the next thing. And this is why the Kelly criteria doesn't work. I, I think it's uh, but, but there is some aspect of, you know, how much should I bet? Like I have a certain amount of money. How, how much should I put into any given company? Um, and that's not an easy problem. I actually have never heard a great analytical answer to it, but, and, and so it's something that, you know, I think about quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do think it's very different investing in venture because in poker, you're competing against other people, right? So what you're going to do depends on what they're going to do and what they're doing depends on what you're going to do, right? It, it becomes very complicated in, in that sense, right? There's a lot of game theory going on. It, it, there's not really a lot of game theory when you're competing against nature. Like in startups, you're generally not competing with other people. You're, you know, especially companies that are trying to build new markets, you're competing against nature, right? Against the unknown, against, against the uncaring, right? Nature doesn't care what you do. So when you compete against nature, you don't have game theory because nature is not reacting to you, right? It just is. So it's a different sort of betting. You know, it, it's, you know, that, and this is again, like, 
I, I've been writing a lot about you know the uh, uncertainty lately, and this is part of the reason, right? It's, game theory is not uncertain in that sense. Um, you may not know what your opponents are going to do, but you can kind of backtrack, and this is the whole point of game theory, say, well, what should they do, right? And then if that's what they should do, what should I do? You can't do that when you're competing against nature because nature doesn't have a what should it do. It's just this huge unknown. What will it do? Who knows? It's not going to follow some rationality. Winning this interesting adventure is luck plays such a dominant role in that if you have an early hit, you then become known as someone who's good. And as we talked about earlier with narratives, that that compounds in, oh, all the founders want to go to the good investor. And, and you know, it takes like many years to have feedback on whether you're quote unquote good or not. And so would that imply that people should start making investments or trying to build a track record as early as possible and being perhaps more you know, freewheeling early on to try to get a hit to build that brand that they are good and, you know, and see the returns compound from there and and then be more, you uh, discerning or or, or I assume that a real investor would like yourself would react negatively to to that. How do you think about that or the broader construct that that relies it? I don't, I don't react negatively to that. I mean, I, I sort of fear it, (laughs) right? You're always at the mercy of your worst competitor, but I think it's, it's true, right? I mean, people choose their investor based not just on price in the term sheet, right? You know, if, if you have t- two investors, one of them Sequoia and the other one is somebody you nobody's ever heard of, and the one nobody's ever heard of has a higher price per share, well, you still will probably take Sequoia, right? Because Sequoia has a reputation for getting great exits. So, you know, would WhatsApp have gotten the price they got if it wasn't Sequoia, if it was some unknown? I don't think so, Right. And if they can get you great exits, then it's worth it. You know, they also, I suppose, you know, give better advice and whatnot. I always kind of question whether that's true of anybody, but um, certainly there are people who don't destroy value by being on your board. And they certainly don't. Um, Whether or not they create value by being on your board is an open question. Whether anybody does, not just them. Uh, So I I think having the reputation for, if you've had big exits, people will look at it and say, all right, they're doing something right. And yes, they will take your money before they take somebody else's. If you have a reputation for really knowing an industry, people will call you before they call somebody who doesn't know the industry as well, right? I mean, that's, of course they will. So, you yeah, know, I, I think being involved early in doing things like that is, is a good idea. And I also think that, you know, if you're dabbling, if you're not sure, you should be taking huge risks, right? Because if you invest, you know, $1,000 in something super risky and it turns out being worth, you know, 200X, that's going to, have a much bigger impact on your reputation than something that's less risky, but only gets you five X, right? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody who invested in uh, Google early on was a genius, right? I mean, that's how we look at it now. Were they really geniuses? I mean, <laughs> you know, if you put yourself in their shoes at that time, well, it was a good technology, no business plan. You know, a couple of founders who didn't actually want to run the business. They really wanted to sell the technology. It doesn't look like genius in that, you know, from that point of view, but, but they were there. Right. So, yeah, that helps your career a lot. And, and, and it does make you more visible to entrepreneurs. So you will see you know, more deal flow. And I've been doing this so long. I don't really think about this very much about generating deal flow, but because it, you know, whatever I'm doing is working and then I just do it and I don't really think about it. But when I talk to people who are just starting, like that's usually their biggest question. Like, well, how do I get people to call me with potential investments? And I, I can see that that would be a problem, right? Like yeah. people don't know you're investing. How, why would they call you? Like people don't just call random people. Yeah. So you, you need to get a reputation of being somebody who does invest, who knows what they're doing, who's a professional. Um, all of these things are important in getting people to call you to say, hey, you want to invest in my company or not? Let, let's let's end with some broader uh, or some closing thoughts in the, in the broader ecosystem. You, you wrote a post um, uh, a decade ago about fixing uh, venture capital. I'm curious if it would be uh, different at all today or perhaps, or maybe another question is, um, how do you expect the uh, you know in 2030 if we're back here talking about the venture ecosystem is it is it kind of going to look the same or any any sort of meaningful sea changes in your view on either the VC side or the LP side of of how the business is done? Yeah, I, I forgot about that post. You know, it's interesting because I've recently invested in a couple of funds. Uh, one is Tyler Tringas's Earnest Capital. Another is Brent Bishore's Permanent Capital, and their model is kind of what I talked about back then, which is. You know, why have this 10-year life? You know, why look for that only that kind of specific company that you can enter and exit within, you know, hopefully five years? Because, you know, given, you know, the, the, the time frame of a typical venture capital fund, that's kind of what you have to look for. That really restricts what you can invest in, 
I mean, how many companies can you start, get to a point where you can exit within five or six years? It's a, uh, you know, it's a very small number of companies out of all the companies that are started, even the companies that are really valuable, like, you know, no venture capitalists would have invested in Walmart, right? Um, it was just the time frame was wrong. So, you know, this idea that you have, you don't have a time frame, um, that you're not necessarily investing uh, in anticipation of a sale or IPO, that there are other ways to uh, get a reward for investing in a company other than having it sell itself or, or go public is really interesting to me. And, and those two funds are doing that. You know, whether or not it's going to work or not remains to be seen. You know, I easy for me to invest in those two while I'm still investing in venture because it diversifies my portfolio. But, and I've written other things that said, like, I don't think that, that, that there's any middle ground between venture and bank lending. You know, that there's, that, you know, for startups, there's no real middle ground. But I'm also pretty, you know, I, if there's one thing I know about myself is that I'm usually wrong, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that venture teaches you. I'm wrong about two thirds of the time. And, uh, you know, I, if these guys are right and I'm wrong, then I've, you know, I get to uh, reap the benefit of their genius. Yeah. Are there structural reasons that prevent sort of the, the you know, you mentioned the five-year thing or like the, the, maybe it's two and 20 model or are there other structural reasons that, that are why the industry has been like, like it's been for so long and so averse to change that that could change or? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, some of the earliest venture funds were these sort of evergreen funds where um, the money that was made from the portfolio was plowed back into the fund and reinvested. So they, they were not closed end, they were open-ended. I don't know what the structural reasons are that for people to prefer these kind of closed end funds, you know, the, that post that from 10 years ago was responding to a comment that Fred Wilson made about how it's too bad. There aren't funds that were like 20 year funds that could invest in longer term things. And it was just sort of struck me as odd because, you know, certainly at that time, if anybody could have gone to LPs and said, Hey, we're doing a 20 year fund, it would have been him. So, you know, if he thought that was better, like, he could have done it, and yet he didn't. And partly, you know, maybe it's because he just not his thing. It wasn't what he wanted to do with himself. That's probably it. But it may also have been just because, you know, it's not the kind of thing that LPs are looking for. And, and tying your money up for some indefinite period of time is hard, of course, for the you know for anybody, much less you know the the kinds of people who might you know like LPs who might actually need the money ten years from now. You know, the the, the open ended funds back then, I think you know it was like ARD, um, American Research and Development, who invested in Digital Equipment Corp back in the fifties. They were, they were public companies. You could buy and sell their stock. So you, you could still exit the investment without having exits within the portfolio because you could sell the stock. But that model has not generally worked that well. Uh, there's been a lot of companies that have tried that. You know, they did, a bunch of companies in the 70s tried it, the SBIC companies. There were a couple of companies like Safeguard Scientific. And there was another one in the dot-com bubble whose name I'm blocking out. Um, there were public companies investing in venture and it was just too volatile. I think you yeah. know the the you know what the the value of the portfolio was so dependent on you know variables that were out of their control that it, you know the volatility was huge, and, and I think public market investors just said forget it. So you know, is it possible? Um, yeah, maybe it's possible. Um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, the people who are trying it now will make it work. Well, we'll have to do an episode in 2030 or before then. My guest today has been Jerry Newman. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 